millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Seb Stafford Bloor of Tifo Football. It's business as usual for Liverpool and Manchester City. They're trading wins in the Premier League while preparing for the semi finals of the Champions League. Next up for City, Watford at home. Liverpool have the little matter of the Merseyside derby to attend to. As we'll discuss later, that threatens to be bad news for Everton. Now, we've all learned to take post-match interviews with a lorry load of salt, but when Pep Guardiola suggested Liverpool will win their six remaining league games, it had the ring of truth, didn't it, Glenn? It did, the way they're playing at the moment, uh, you have to admit. I mean, steamrolling over sides uh, very comfortably, and I can't see Everton stopping them. There are one or two tricky fixtures uh, coming up. I mean, Newcastle, you know, six home wins and a bounce, and... They've got to go there, so that might not be that easy now. Tottenham, uh, Anfield, unlikely, but that sort of game with uh, Spurs able to counter-attack might suit them. And then, of course, they have to go to Villa, and it would be rather ironic if Stevie Gerrard's team was the team to stop Liverpool winning the title. But you'd have to say on form, it's hard to see either side slipping up, and it could well be a case of both teams you know, going to the wild, winning every game, and... Both of them very much aware that if they lose one, that could probably yeah, cost them the championship. Yeah, as I said, said we've got the Merseyside derby on Sunday. We spoke about the irony of Stephen Gerrard getting involved in the title race, the permutations. But what about Liverpool helping to send Everton down? Is that likely, given if you look at the fixtures that Everton have got in the next couple of weeks, you know, Leicester again and then Chelsea to follow after after Sunday's game? Yeah, and if they're still in trouble on the final day, I think they have to go to Arsenal, which looks very difficult indeed. No, I don't, I don't hold up too much hope for, for Everton at the weekend, but there are positive signs. I mean, they the point against Leicester was very important, but also Yerry Mina is back in the heart of defence, which will make a difference. I don't think he's the very best central defender, but I think he is their best. Dele Alli played quite well when he came on. Richarlison, a little bit unpredictable in front of goal, but obviously super important. And Fabian Delph has, has made a difference in midfield. I think the truth is with Everton is that they are still a side in recovery, but they're a little bit tougher. If you look at some of the games that they've lost recently, with the exception of that calamitous loss against Burnley at Turf Moor, they're losing by the odd goal. And it's not as hopeless as it was. And there is some improvement, long way to go. And Liverpool is a, um, I think, I think I agree with Glenn, uh, Liverpool are the best team in Europe at the moment, I think, in terms of just the cohesion and fluidity. Just They look like just a really well-oiled football team full of class. And uh, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a bit too much, I think. But Everton are getting better. Whether there's enough train track out in front of them, I'm not sure. But there is some improvement. Yeah, it's like concern. For, I mean, it's like concern for Everton against Liverpool. Is obviously their goal difference is exactly equal to Burnley's. Liverpool are capable of racking up a score, uh, and obviously Burnley do close that gap. And four points is quite a big gap to close when you're a struggling side with only like seven games to go. I mean, so it's not guaranteed. If Burnley do close that gap, they will obviously be picking up more points, and that means their goal difference is likely to be better. So that's another concern for Everton going into the weekend. Mm. Do you think, Seb, that Burnley have got a, probably a better run in than Everton, certainly on paper? And and also, you know, let's dwell a little bit on the sacking of Sean Dyche. You know, to me, you know, it's only less than a week away, but it's still absolutely incomprehensible. 
I'm a little bit old-fashioned in the sense that whilst I understand that football works very differently now, I felt as if Sean Dyche had the right to take Burnley down because he's the reason why they're there. He's the reason why they've stayed there. He is their identity, particularly over these you know, last couple of years. What Burnley are is what Sean Dyche is. The thing is, the thing is, is that obviously we're recording this before Burnley plays Southampton. If they win that game and there's a sudden upturn in form, it becomes easier to justify the decision and to, to kind of throw all of that romanticism away. I was impressed by what they did at West Ham. They were a little bit they were grateful to their goalkeeper for preserving the point, but they, they played better. There's a little bit of upturn in performance. And look, no matter what I think about Sean Dyche, ultimately football proves this to be true. Sometimes changing the voice in the dressing room just over a short term, just over three or four weeks, it matters. And if that keeps Burnley in the Premier League, then it becomes very, very easy to defend the decision. It's just, I, I think the word I'd use, Mike, is it's sad. It's sad that a an epoch like that, and it's kind of redefined what Burnley are in the modern era, that it can end just because of a downturn in results and that, you know, there isn't an opportunity to go down, reset, recalibrate, go back up again, start again, relaunch the project, allow a manager to evolve his thinking to, to potentially to kind of learn from mistakes possibly and then go again. I, the, the modern game doesn't really seem to have a lot of room for that or a lot of patience for it. And it's, I think it's regrettable. I think that something's been lost as a result. That's true. You know, they're at home to Wolves on Sunday, which will give us a gauge of the popularity or otherwise of the new board or the new owners. I suppose you just want to dwell on the broader aspects of, of Burnley, if I could, Glenn. You know, this is a club, as um, Seb alluded to there, that reflects the character of its community and its principal figures. But as such, is it almost a club that's out of, out of time and out of place? I wonder, though, I mean, look at your notes when you, before the programme, and Johnny Lou wrote a piece along those lines, didn't he, this week, about burning the community. It's hard in the modern era with so many big super clubs, you know, to think of some of those clubs as representing their community these days with, with such, you know, big international audiences. So they, again, you look at one or two of the young players at Arsenal, and I think there's a feeling there, even a club as big as that, that there is a bond between the supporters and what's a very young team. Someone pointed out that team last night could actually have played in the under-23 league, the Premier League 2, because they only had three players over, over the age of 23 at the start of the season. The, but, but I don't think... You, I mean, Burnley's unique in the way it linked with Deitch and its own community, but you look in around, I mean, I guess you say Stoke still got local ownership, uh, even if we're not that comfortable where the money's come from. Norwich, you know, uh, Brighton, uh, Crystal Palace, whose team also reflects the community as well as having a, a certain amount of local ownerships. So I don't even um, Everton, the Bill Kenwright link, and, and the fantastic work they do in the community. I know obviously the ownership is very, the majority of ownership is now very different, but I don't think it's completely beyond the case that. You can have a, even a Premier League clubs with a sense of community. I think that that community field, to a large extent, does now exist lower down in the leagues. But there are some Premier League clubs that still very much do feel part of their roots. Yeah, well, Watford has always been and prided itself on being a community club. I think that, that bond has been broken or certainly fractured in, in recent years. You know, they're at Manchester City on, on Saturday, given... Yeah, their home form, relegation seems you know, pretty in inevitable, doesn't it? So yeah, a uh, matter of time, I would say. And looking back on the season as a whole, I think one of the problems with Watford is in the past, before they got relegated before, I think despite the lack of continuity, there was a, a little bit of a core of players in that team and there was a, I would say, personality to the way they played football, which kind of survived different managerial eras. I know the tactics were different and they kind of bounced between counter-attacking or having aggressive, um, bolder approach, shall we say, uh, which would prove his undoing. This season, I've never really got a handle on what, what Watford are. Like, it's just a collection of players. It feels like the end game of this strategy, this philosophy that's been going on for a long time. And, and I think it's kind of, it's, it's noticeable and telling that, there's a public discussion now seemingly about whether it's time to move on from that and to kind of fall back in line with traditional football thinking. And I always thought that would happen because I I understand the short, sharp, shock approach to staying in the Premier League because it's worked. What I don't understand is 
what I, what I always assumed was that, that that would be a kind of a gateway to something a little bit more traditional. So you build some stability, you collect a few broadcasting payments, you benefit from your recruitment. And then as a result of that, you move on to something different or something a little bit more sustainable. And that never happened. And I, um, it feels like this is the end result of that, that there's no, whatever the benefits of that short, short, short culture, they've gone now. And I don't think Roy Hodgson is really the person to to deliver it in the first place this time because it, it's, I don't know. It feels like it's a relegation that's been settled for. Mike, I, I, I'm, I'm, I apologise if that's unfair, but that is how it's looked from the outside. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, whether they do change it, I mean, Udinese, which obviously also owned by the Pozzo family, they've had 35 managerial changes in the 35 years that the Pozzos have owned it, <laughs> including five managers doing it twice, a couple of which have also managed Watford. But, and there are 13 in the last eight years, and yet Udinese has stayed in Serie A throughout that, you know, for quite a long time. They've been quite a stable club in that respect. Watford have had 15 since they sacked Sean Dyche when they took over 10 years ago. And usually not one of them's an ex-player, which is quite unusual in football. But So... If I was being tapped up as the next manager, because we all know, obviously, Roy's only a short-term go, and they said, we're now in for the long haul, you know, we're going to back you, you've had a kind of dodgy spell, don't worry, where the ball's right behind you. I'm not convinced I would believe them if I was being told that, because <laughs> the record doesn't suggest that's the case at all. If they're not in the top six by December, I imagine there might be another change. Uh, this is assuming they're in the uh, championship. Obviously, they won't be the top six in the Premier League by December if they stay up. So we'll see. I think the um, the jury remains out on that one. I wonder whether I, I I don't know. I think this tallies with what you said, Glenn. Here, but I wonder whether the managerial approach at times deadens the impact of some of the benefits of their scouting. So I look at Udinese and I look at someone like Beto before he's come in, and um, I mean he's he's had an amazing impact, and I had never heard of him before about sort of a, a year ago. And I've always thought that if you've got if you've got strong recruitment, one of the benefits or one of the ways that which, in which you can accentuate the benefits of that is by having a stable plan at first team level. So that you know when you recruit a player, you know what that player is going to eventually fit into as a component. And you know, right, this player is going to work because we're going to maximize this attribute, this attribute, this attribute, this attribute. If the first team picture and the formation and the, and the tactics and the personnel are always changing... I think it, it it creates another barrier for a um, like a you know a, a Kucha Hernandez type. Like it makes it harder for that kind of player to to settle in. Particularly, particularly if it's in English football and if that player is has no experience of English football. And so you wonder whether all the departments are really lined up at, at Watford. That would be my concern, and and that would be I think something to work towards potentially in the future. Also, you mentioned the fresh voice in the dressing room. If there's a fresh voice every few months, it rather loses any kind of impact, doesn't it? Um, and, the, and the players will know they can always outlast the manager if, he, if he's off every few months. It's a lot of a substitute like teachers. A bit like May yeah. United fans. Yeah. Players, players obviously feel they can always outlast the manager. Yeah, yeah. It would be. I know this is very, very, very unlikely given the lingering resentment caused by his sacking, but Sean Dyche might be the perfect fit. You know, as I said, they're at, at City. Guardiola said quickest to 250 Premier League wins. I just want to interrogate his selection policy, if I could. You know, dwelling back to the FA Cup semi-final, you know, that team selection there, does that signal pragmatism to you or just a hint of defeatism? Well, in that particular instance, I think it was a statement about how difficult it is to play Atletico Madrid sometimes because <laughs> yeah. they got kicked to pieces. I didn't really have a problem with the selection, Mike. I, I think I just don't think it worked particularly well. I always get nervous about changing goalkeepers in FA Cup semi-finals. As a Tottenham fan, I never really enjoyed it when Maurizio Pochettino did that because it just cost goals every single time. It cost goals. I think the one. By the way, by the way, what we were talking about Watford. Watford actually went through a spell where they picked a wine a wine waiter for. Uh, a semi-final. Plumley. <laughs> Eddie Plumley's son, Gary Plumley. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we digress. Well, well, on the City thing, I, I think the, the main issue probably was Jack Grealish's role in that semi-final because I don't mind Grealish as a false nine, but that's not the role he played in the game. He was kind of trying to be a, a kind of back-to-goal target man type. He didn't get the kind of possession that he needed. He didn't get in the areas that he needed and it didn't work. But I, I don't think defeatism is the, is the right word because... City have fabulous resources. They have an enviable playing squad. There is never a situation during the course of the season where they're putting out a team that isn't world class ever. So I don't, I don't have a, either a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah, but it's a, I think it's kind of a, 
if we if we if we kind of roll this out to be a broader point, I think what we what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is this is a little bit agendary from me, but it shows that there is too much football. Because if we're talking about a team like Manchester City with all the money in the world and all the players in the world and the very best head coach in the world, and they are still suffering as a result of having to rotate and players are still unable to form at the uh, height of their potential in FA Cup semi-finals. If that team can't manage it, then goodness knows what everybody else is supposed to do. And so, yes, this is uh, a little bit of a, a boring point for me, but it, it is about fixture congestion too. Because supposing... I don't know. I mean, if that had been West Ham, for instance, if they'd had to play a, uh, a European game on Thursday and then go on to a, an FA Cup semi-final on, on, on Sunday, we can't just create the conditions whereby you're only able to compete if you have 30 world-class players available. So I think this is kind of a broader issue for the game to look at. But no, I mean, City City just didn't win the game. They made mistakes. They played badly. And also, I, I'm sure Diego Simeone had a little bit of a chuckle when he was watching that game too. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it's fair to say they've got a slightly weaker squad than Liverpool, slightly less depth. I mean, you know, I take the point they're all world class players, but I think the squad is only about twenty strong, which is smaller than some squads. But I think you could say that either Guardiola hasn't got as much faith in the players coming out of Liverpool, uh, City's academy, uh, with the exception of Foden, or they're not as good as the ones coming out of Liverpool's academy. But it is noticeable that Liverpool have leaned on one or two of the young players, uh, you know, Jones, Elliot, uh, you know, Gordon, one or, two, one or two of the younger players, more than City have in those sort of circumstances. I mean, if Kevin De Bruyne apparently was never, ever going to play, why put him on the bench here? Why not have one of the younger players on it? The, so, so maybe I think one, one thing that might happen this summer, they may look to have built one or two players more in a bit more depth in terms of numbers, I mean, obviously, they've got the lad from uh, Argentina who's coming in already. Um, I mean, I guess a bit unfortunate one of your players has ruled out through police action for the start of, from the start of the season, which you weren't expecting. But they haven't suffered particularly badly from long-term injuries during the season. It just seems maybe Pep just likes working with a slightly smaller squad than some because it's not always easy to keep all these guys happy, obviously, if they expect to play. I wonder if mm. also, like, it's kind of... I wonder whether we need a new term beyond squad depth because I look at City and... I do agree the pool of players is a little bit smaller, but then that's a problem of Guardiola's making because if you mm. if you give the time to younger players, Cole Palmer's a good player, if you give the time, then your pool increases and it's noticeable that that's what Liverpool have done, like Harvey Elliott and Curtis Jones and originally, of course, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Like You create more fast-team viable players and your only avenue to, to kind of broadening your, your, um, your selection pool isn't the transfer market and that feels like a city that, that that's still a little bit the case. Yeah, well, you've got the the probable signing of Erling Haaland in the summer. You know, what does that do to their prospects, Seb? And what does it say about their status and their strategy? <laughs> what a question. Yes, well, it makes them a bit more competitive, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, I live in Germany most of the time and seen a lot of him in Europe, but also in the Bundesliga. What a monster of a player he is. I have a little bit of a question mark against his conditioning just because he's had some injury difficulties. And whenever you see a big, explosive, dynamic forward, I think back to original Brazilian Ronaldo and I think about some of the difficulties that he had. But if you keep Erling Haaland fit, you're guaranteeing goals, which is the most, still the most priceless commodity in football. I don't know what it says about them. I, I mean, I, I think this is kind of a, a situation that's a little bit personal for Erling Haaland because obviously his father played for Manchester City. He was born in Manchester, uh, I think he was born in Leeds, sorry. There's a, a special attachment there, which I think City have been able to trade off or will have done so if they complete the signing. We're not quite sure yet. Oh, goodness me. I mean, that that is a, that's the kind of signing actually that makes you look forward to next season already, doesn't it? Because he's box office. I mean, he's a, yes, he's a goal scorer, but he's also a spectacle He's someone that you watch from a kind of a, just a, he's, you can't take your eyes off him. He's a, an excellent, excellent player. And it's kind of a, it's close to guaranteeing a title as I think you can get when you sign someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was struck by one of your social media posts, Glenn, where you said that since the Premier League began, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, or Manchester United have won 28 out of the 30 t- league titles and 26 out of 30 FA Cups. The exceptions, uh, Leicester winning the Cup Hand League, Blackburn the Premier League, Wigan, Everton and Portsmouth the Cup. Is that a bad thing for the game? 
Yeah, uh, that, that, that will be the case by the end of the season, those figures, obviously, once Liverpool got into the final. I personally think it is a bad thing for the game. I mean, there was quite a lot of response to that post. Lots of people also said, well, it's better than France, it's better than Spain, it's better than Italy, you know, it's better than these other countries, it's better than Germany, obviously. That doesn't necessarily make it a good thing. There's just the fact that it's better than some of those other places. If you don't support one of those half-dozen clubs, what are you aiming for in the in the season? You know, to... to Maybe, maybe, just maybe, to get into the Champions League. Though the Champions League thing actually is even more. I think in the last twenty-five years, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, City, United have qualified eighty-four times in the Champions League. The rest of the Premier League, ten between them, and half of those were Spurs. So you're basically trying to, you know, complete, start the season, try to get into Europa League, and when you get there, you feel the weakened team, or you just try to stay up, which is the case for a lot of the teams there. I mean, I know people support teams that sort of bounce up and down, like, like Bournemouth and sort of thing. Well, it'd be great to go up and see Arsenal, Chelsea, Man United, Dean Court, but then again, we'd be losing every week. <laughs> but equally, I mean, in that particular case, once their parachute payments run out, you know, they've got problems they do need to go up this year. But for clubs that do bounce up and down, I mean, you know, West Brom fans, you know, are they better off winning most of the time in the Championship or losing most of the time in the Premier League? So I think it is a problem. And I tell you what, I would never thought I would have believed, believed this, but I'm now coming around to the idea that I think we should have playoffs at the end of the season, like they're doing rugby, the rugby coach in this country, like they're doing in America. And therefore, suddenly, you know, if you had playoffs, you'd be looking at, instead of the race for fourth, now it's a race to get into positions where you could actually end up being the champion. And people don't look at rugby union and say, well, you're not really champions. It's a team that won the regular season. I mean, you could argue that's slightly unfair, but the league is unfair. You know, club, some clubs have vast, vastly greater resources than other clubs. You want a fair league, you bring in a salary cap, bring in a draft system and all those sort of things. So I think it would uh, spark a bit of interest when we do it in the other divisions. Hmm. So we, we may the- be getting to that stage. If City end up buying Haaland and win the next 10 titles, we might be thinking we need to change things because no, no one's watching on TV anymore. Hmm. What, what about that idea of a playoff system, uh, Seb? Would you go along with that? I find it intriguing. I mean, I... I think it brings a couple of new problems in that I mean you, you could still have a situation where like several games towards the end of the season become meaningless, but then I guess you'd say that a lot of them already are. I'd say that uh, you know I suppose the benefit really is that about this time of the year, probably maybe even earlier, maybe sort of March, early April, you have this great disenfranchisement of the middle of the league, which is that you know you have five or six teams who are just on the beach from March onwards who know they're safe, who know they're not going to get into Europe who are out of both of the cups and who are just treading water until August. I get it. I just, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's a, I watch plenty of rugby league and I kind of, I, I enjoy the playoff system there. And I, I don't, I don't think, I don't have a problem with the idea of someone finishing first and then going into a playoff tournament. I think maybe the problem for me is that my faith in any kind of meritocracy is really gone because it's just still going to be, even on a one-off basis, is still going to be dominated by the same teams because yes, every dog can have their day, but as we've seen with the teams that finish or the teams who are in the last four of the the, the FA Cup every season, who are winning the League Cup every season, who are in the last eight, last four of the Champions League, it's still going to be dominated by those who have and that the have-nots are okay. Maybe with an extra playoff game and a you know a you know a big occasion, you still feel like you're playing for not even second place, but like eighth maybe. I. I I think we need a kind of um God, this is gonna sound a little bit revolutionary, isn't it, this podcast? I think it's I think it's a little bit of a sticking plaster to some of the problems that football has now. Has mm. it ever been discussed in Germany where obviously you have got one utterly dominant team? Yeah, so it came up earlier this season actually, and I suppose it's a little bit of an easier conversation to have because the playoff system is a little bit more involved in Bern in, in, in Germany. So at the end of each season, there's a Bundesliga and there's Vida Bundesliga playoff, which will be between the team that finished third bottom in the Bundesliga and the team that finished third top in the Zweite uh, Bundesliga. And that's a great occasion. It's, a, it's an amazing spectacle. And it's sort of ultimate jeopardy, of course, because you've got two teams fighting for their positions. I think in Germany, it's a little bit of a different case because it, you, you basically have Manchester City, Chelsea, Manchester United, they're all rolled in, and Liverpool all rolled into one side. There are no... There isn't no second Bayern Munich. I know people think that sort of Borussia Dortmund are a near challenger or Leipzig. It's nowhere close. Nowhere close. So Germany, I think there's a stronger case for it. And um, I think that conversation is a little bit more advanced, but I still don't see it happening just because it feels, 
I think for a lot of people, certainly for a lot of people who remain in executive power in football, it's too much of a departure from football's traditional structure. It's a bit too rugby for a lot of people. Now, the the, 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 the pros and cons of that, it's not sort of the place to debate, but it's a bit too alien, I think. I think it might come if TV viewers stop switching off. Of course, we did have those promotion relegation playoffs in um, England uh, uh, some time, some years ago, and um, they were great occasions. They're fun, aren't they? Some of them. They're really Except fun. Except, well, the police, the police put a stop to them because there was quite a lot of crowd <laughs> trouble associated with several of them because there is so much at stake. Uh, promotion players are all about joy. Relegation players are all about despair, and that sort of raises stakes quite a lot over here. Yeah, but they are compelling, as you say, aren't they? Seb mentioned their teams on the beach, which brings us, I suppose, to Manchester United quite conveniently. Glenn, is that rebuild, which I think we probably all agree is inevitable, how long should it take? I think, was it, Michael Richard said six years last night? Did he say more than that? Uh, Rangnick talked about four or five years. You never know. I mean, Newcastle Spurs this year are quite a good indication of how a club can change quite quickly. I mean, there are players there who are performing in, in international football. Yeah, uh, Pogba, Shaw, Maguire. I know Pogba's on his way. Yeah, Lingard went to West Ham and suddenly he looked at world beater. Uh, so uh, he's obviously also on his way. They've got a problem that only six players out of contract because, it, let's be honest, if this was a fantasy football team, you play your wild card and change the entire lot because it's, it's clearly a cultural reset required as much as a, a personnel reset. And that's partly about the management. Uh, there's a fascinating piece in um, Patrick Evers' book on when David Moyes was there. And he was obviously the first of the post-Fergie managers. And now he went in and said to the, you know, to the dressing room, look, come on, guys, this is this is also on us. Because by then they were taking the mick out of Moyes, they weren't training properly there. They, uh, they're blaming the manager for everything. And, yeah, this is about us. Yeah, this is about the dressing room. And it's all like, oh, what do you care? He's already looking at other left-backs. It's like... And that attitude appears to permeate after manager, after manager, after manager. So whoever comes in... Is come, yeah, you know, it looks like it's going to be Ten Hag. Whoever comes in is coming to a situation whereby you're, you have a dressing room who basically know if it doesn't work out, you'd be gone and they will still be there because they've got long contracts. And it's going to be really, really hard to shift some of those players on long contracts or even contracts who aren't up because their value isn't going to be anywhere near what United would like to get. And I suspect the Glazers will want to get value for selling players and on good wages. So it is a huge job, but. It's not inconceivable, you know, with a good start next season and some changes, you can completely turn around a club quite quickly, as has happened at Newcastle and Spurs. I mean, it's one of those things, it's hard to imagine that United have gone on so badly, so long, through so many managers post-Ferguson. At some point, it has to stop. There's simply too much cash there. And they have spent money on players, even if the, the, the club itself looks like very much needs... Uh, yeah, a, a full reset. I mean, Old Trafford needs a lot of work on it, for example. There's been neglect everywhere. It's not just on, on the pitch. But again, a lot of this players have been bought and then the turnover managers and different systems and you know, so on. And you do end up with this situation whereby no one really knows what they're doing there. Mm, I suppose, you know, like most things in football, you know, recruitment is, is the, the heart of all this. You know, we've had the chief scout, Jim Lawler, and the head of uh, global scouting uh, leaving the club in the last couple of days which some might say was overdue. Others will actually offer you the counter-argument that you know they were putting forward the right players, but no one was listening. A lot of talk about Paul Mitchell, who's currently at Monaco, and he is being sought by several clubs. I suppose the, the, the question is, Seb, why would he join Manchester United in their current state? Yeah, I mean, also, if you're a director of football, I think the one thing that you want guarantees over is is your influence. Like, if you're a director of football and you're you bring smart recruitment, you bring ideas, and you bring a proper strategy to a club, none of that matters unless it's activated by the people above you. I find the Jim Lawler situation a little bit weird. Maybe there's more to it than I'm aware of, but well thought of person, I'm sure he'll get another job fairly quickly. But to me, the problem, the problem at Man United hasn't necessarily been talent identification, or that I, I don't know that it is. It's bad deals, failures in negotiation. I think if you look at kind of, for instance, I know Jaden Sancho is there now, but if you think about sort of the um, the melodrama around his signing the year before, when it was just noise and nothing really happened, and you know there were kind of long reads about just how little was actually done throughout an entire summer, that was very very strange. So someone like Mitchell 
is well he's he would find that kind of culture extremely difficult i'm sure there were issues for him at, at tottenham when he was there I, I think and you know if you if you you come in i think you know he built obviously a, a lot of his reputation at southampton during the old uh, les reed black box days down there now one of the benefits was clearly a level of faith in his judgment and a level of faith in his work his work actually instructed what the club did in the transfer market now if that's not the case and Manchester United is about as unpliable a football club as there is in England at the moment. That's not the case. It's a, it's a kind of, I'm sure it'd be a very, very well paid job, but it's not one in which you can have a lot of, uh, a lot of effect. So that's something that definitely has to change. You've also got a new manager who, if we're, what we're told is true, has demanded his own input on transfers and recruitment and so on. So they would have to be on the same page. I mean, Everton's a classic example of when managers and directors of footballs and owners can't agree a transfer strategy and end up having this terrible, wasteful, scattergun policy of buying players and not quite knowing what to do with them. Mm. You know, managers can make an, an instant impact. You know, you, you talked about the way Conte's stabilised and, and revitalised Spurs, Glenn. Difficult to sustain that impact sometimes. Is it fair to say, do you think, that Thomas Tuchel's now entering almost like the second phase of his career at Chelsea? You know, that, that defeat by Arsenal, it was, I think, um, the stat that, that really jumped out at me was that Chelsea have now only taken three more league points at home this season than Everton. Puts a lot of in, a lot of things into perspective. You know, did we are we entering now almost a new era at Chelsea? Well, we're always entering a new era at Chelsea, um, <laughs> but this time, of course, off the pitch as well, where the uncertainty about the ownership and what's going to happen. It would appear whoever comes in is going to have plenty of money. Whether they will spend it quite so freely as the previous owner uh, is to be seen. And, I mean, yes, he, he looked very... He cut a very, very frustrated figure last night, didn't he, in his post-match interviews. Uh, it's three successive home defeats, uh, conceding quite a lot of goals. And awareness, perhaps, that the depth there isn't as good as it might be. Uh, they really miss Rudiger. If he goes off in the summer, that would be a big loss. Uh, defensively, yeah, I mean, when you rely upon a 37-year-old to try and fix things, it's never really a good situation. I think they've missed Chilwell, because uh, Saka had Alonso and Toast last night. So it is, and of course, there's the Lukaku thing. I mean, he bought Lukaku. Well, he's, Lukaku's bought while he was manager. Clearly, appears of no great faith in him. Lukaku being a, a, appears to be a very good example of, as, as Seb referred to earlier in, in, in the podcast, about buying a player with no real plan for him because he doesn't appear to suit Chelsea's style at all. So, yeah, the one one interesting aspect of the change of ownership under yeah, Abramovich. There's been very little patience from managers. You know, there's been a very high turnover. They've won lots of trophies. Arguably, they might have won more trophies with more faith in managers. But managers haven't lasted very long when things have gone sour. And new man new owners tend to want to bring in their own man. So two children's time may be limited if he doesn't. You know, if he has a dip. But after that, it'd be interesting to see if the owners, whoever they are. Uh, tend to stick with managers a little bit longer than has been the case in the past. Because whoever's managing Chelsea is going to be, ought to be there or thereabouts in contention for honours. You know, because it's simply got such a good depth of squad at the moment. I mean, that could definitely one, two places. But they've got good resources compared to most clubs. So it'll be interesting what does happen. But certainly we are heading for a new year at Chelsea for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, but I suppose when you look at a signing like Lukaku, it's it's like throwing a boulder into a pond, isn't it? There are so many big ripples. If you think about it, what this does highlight is not just that apparent mistake of re-signing Lukaku, but how do you get there in the first place? You have to sell really good young defenders like you know, Tamori and, and Guy at, at Palace. You've, you've let... Tammy Abraham go, um, player of the month in Syria at, um, um, unveiled yesterday. So it's it's a it's a it's not just one mistake. It's it's one mistake leads to other or highlights other errors, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I, I find Chelsea a little bit of a conundrum because I the those defenders you mentioned, the Tamori one. Tamori's been sensational in Milan since he went there. And I looked at the, the defenders that Chelsea fielded last night and like I, I know what Thiago Silva was in the game and he's still a good player. I, I'm not sure what Malingsar is. I haven't seen enough of him, but it's just 
not really good. I mean, the real winner from last night, I, th I think, was probably Antonio Rudiger's agent because, you know, you look at him and you take him out of that defence, all of a sudden it looks like a mid-table team. But then you have all these resources at Chelsea and we talk about kind of like, you know, the collection of players. But I think what's interesting is there are two or three players who you can take out of that team and it affects everything. Kovacic is one. You take Kovacic out of the midfield, it is not the same at all. And Golo Kante is, is suffering through a bad period of form, probably one of the first times in his career, but he's having a difficult time. Glenn's absolutely right. Chilwell's loss, the loss of Chilwell was seismic. Changed the, the entire balance of Chelsea's defence. They also lost Reese James on the other side for a long period of time. So it's kind of funny because you have these resources and also Chelsea have a reputation for good negotiation. Marina Granascar is, is so well thought of in, in the game. And also, I think whoever comes in to own Chelsea next, I think the big question is whether Granascar works underneath them or not. That's a huge, huge turning point one way or the other. And yet they seem dependent on the same individual players. I think the real thing with Lukaku is not even tactical. It's Lukaku as a person seems to be someone who needs to be appreciated. You need to make him feel loved. You need to make him feel respected. And if you don't, things go south pretty quickly. And I think a lot of us are like that. You know, it's, it's a very human way to behave. So it's kind of strange. If you don't have a plan for a guy and you're going to say to him things like, well, Thomas Tuchel challenged him publicly last week, didn't he? He talked about, you know, well, look at Timo Werner and look what he's done. I don't necessarily think Lukaku's that personality. You buy him, you pay £100 million pounds for him, you make him the centrepiece of your team. As Inter Milan did, and they got a fabulous result of it uh, out of it. His combination with Latoura Martinez was wonderful at times. So it's really strange to to try and match the reputation with some of the things we see and the the, the kind of the, the situation that Tuchel has. And I think frustration is the right word too, because you you have he, he's a wonderful head coach and he's one of the most astute managers in the game today, and yet the kind of the pieces that he need aren't needs aren't quite there to kind of complete the job this season. They should have won that Real Madrid second leg. They should have completed one of the best comebacks we've seen all season in Europe. Didn't because the players he needed to be in the situations at the right time were not there. And Karen Benzema ran them over, unfortunately. So a bit of a strange situation. It's very strange also to think of a team who've won the European Cup less than a year ago who are now in a, not a crisis, but at a little bit of a junction. Very strange situation. Mm. West Ham are at Stamford Bridge on Sunday, Glenn. You know, the Europa League has taken aspects of, of a crusade for them, but do you share my sort of nagging feeling that a huge chance is being squandered or has been squandered in the Premier League? You know, they just didn't invest in January, and that's down to the owners. And David Moyes has had a thin squad and, and pretty much avoidable issues to deal with. Yeah, Moyes has done very well with the squad he's got, particularly since you know, one or two injuries in key areas. And, you know, the Bowen's obviously had some injuries. Uh, Antonio, defensively, there's been injuries. Uh, they're still there or thereabouts and hanging on, but it does seem that the Champions League is now looking a bit out of reach and that would have been an incredible opportunity. Having said that, and because of the you know, lack of investment in January, perhaps, and the fact that West Ham obviously have a smaller squad than the sort of the, the teams they're competing against for Champions League place anyway, if you had to prioritise something, I think most fans would say, let's go for the silverware, let's go for the Europa League. I mean, not the only thing. I mean, you look at you know Eintracht Frankfurt; it's a bit of a crusade for them, judging by the invasion of Barcelona. Rangers will feel the same. Uh, Red Bull Leipzig are a bit of a different sort of club, but there is, yeah, that, that, that's become quite an interesting comp competition. Yeah, for West Ham to get to the final and indeed to win the competition would be fantastic for their fans and, and for the club. Uh, I think probably more so than qualifying for the Champions League and then getting the group stages and getting a couple of wins because they, they get a desperate draw with the coefficient. I mean, as Martin Ziegler pointed out this week, because of the coefficient, the way it's run now in favour of the big clubs, they would actually pick up £25 million less than Chelsea just, you know, when, as it starts because of the way it's now structured financially. So whilst you, they would still get a lot of money by being in the Champions League, which, of course, they could get into by winning the Europa League, it's not quite as beneficial for a club like West Ham as it is actually for the bigger clubs. So they proportionate to a bigger increase, in the, I suppose, of their general income. So coming fourth, as Arsene Wenger used to say, that's a trophy. Or actually winning a trophy. I think they'd settle for winning a trophy, to be honest. But, of course, they've got to win it yet. True. So if we are looking at fourth, Arsenal have Manchester United at the Emirates on Saturday. Artesta says Champions League qualification uh, will be a game changer for the club. I suppose, Seb, you know, the longer a club is out of the Champions League, the harder it becomes to get back, doesn't it? 
Yeah, and I also slightly disagree. I think qualifying for the Champions League is a game changer if you do it two or three years in a row. One season, as Glenn just said about West Ham, one season makes it a nice day out. Three changes an era. I think also, actually, a lot of what we've said about West Ham applies to Arsenal. Arsenal would be already qualified if they had a proper number nine. Uh, Eddie Nketiah played extremely well at, at Stamford Bridge on Wednesday night. But if they'd had a kind of, and I, I, I know the kind of the comeback about Aubameyang, but I think Aubameyang was done at Arsenal. I don't think he'd have scored goals. I don't think he'd be doing what he's doing at Barcelona if he'd stayed. If they'd invested properly in January and they had a number nine, Man United and, and Tottenham wouldn't be anywhere near them, I don't think. They were playing that well. And also this time of year, if you have a centre forward who can score goals and get you over the line in matches where you're not perhaps playing your best, so uh, Palace, Southampton, Brighton, makes all the difference and they didn't have it. And that's why they've been kind of dragged in. I, th- I still think they'll get there. Their, their running is tough. I think they'll batter Manchester United at the weekend. Manchester United are funny because Man United have behaved over these last few weeks as if there's nothing to play for. I think a couple of their players even described the, the season as being dead. So, well, in qualify for the Champions League. I mean, it's not as if like Arsenal and Tottenham are going to run the table. We know that both teams are going to drop points between now and the end of the season. And Man United are behaving as if they're chasing 1970s Brazil. Like it's it's a it's a very strange attitude. But I like I would I, I think Arteta's oh, done a very good job, Arsenal. I think I think some of the performances he's getting out of particularly those young players, Saka's an excellent player, Smith Rowe's a lovely player. His goal. At Stanford Bridge on Wednesday, it's a kind of piece of artistry. What a lovely, cultured little finish that was! Um, just tickled it into the corner, and I, I always think it's very—it's telling when a team is able to take advantage of the weaknesses of a team like Chelsea, because a lot of in, in a lot of instances, teams that have gone Stanford Bridge last night and lost because they're playing Chelsea rather than they're playing the performance they're actually faced with. Whereas Arsenal were actually able to find the cracks in what was an absolutely desperate Chelsea performance and took advantage of it perfectly. So he's. His job performance probably deserves a fourth place finish. Got a little bit of tricky ground to cover before they get there, but looking good, looking good. Mm. Bakaya Saka, Glenn, I don't know about you, but I thought that penalty was almost his Stuart Pierce moment, wasn't it? Yes, it was interesting. When I saw him grab the ball and then obviously Asper Equator sort of was, was raging at him and then everyone piled in on both sides. I, I did begin to wonder whether he'd done what Asper Equator had done in the... Um, the, the the world tournament you know, grabbing the ball to protect someone else, but then when he put it down, there would have been a lot of people, you know, you know, thinking, please don't miss, <laughs> not again, because of course Chris Waddle did famously miss the next time he took a penalty. I mean, for for every Stuart Pearce is also Chris Waddle, and it was great when he scored. Yeah, and uh, Chelsea fans have given some abuse early in the season. You let your country down uh, in the in the first game. I mean, yeah, obviously a minority, but yeah, so that would be nice for him as well. And, yeah, the, the, the determination, certainty, you know, he showed, you know, grabbing the ball, right, I'm going to take it, because obviously Lacazette normally takes the penalties and he's off the pitch. Yeah, M- Mendy, um, not got a brilliant record saving penalties in Premier League, but he's done pretty well in some quite big games in Africa recently, a penalty shootout. So, yeah, no no easy penalty in that respect. Uh, so, very encouraging. And what would have been massively encouraging for, I mean, I thought Arsenal, for the first 20 minutes last night, were all over the place. And Chelsea, it's incredible that they were winning 2-1 at one point. But once they got into the game, it was the performances from players like Tavares, uh, El Nene was hardly played, you know, Xhaka was dominant in, in Ketia. The, the performance of the players you wouldn't necessarily expect to be performing. The second El Nene was holding. excellent, wasn't he? Really yeah, great. He yeah, he was. Yeah, for a guy who hadn't played since New Year's Day for the, for the team. And, you know, uh, Rob Holding, you know, again, came for a very hard, tough first half, played well in the second half. Yeah, the way those players, the way those players performed, you wouldn't necessarily expect that level of performance given recent games. Whereas, you know, Saka and Odegaard have been playing well for, for a long, long time this season. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that would be very encouraging. And I also fancy that the, they will do quite well against Manchester United at the weekend. Though, of course, you never know, do you? Mm. You've got Spurs at Brentford on Saturday, Seb, you know, the Christian Eriksen reunion. Do you think we might have that being extended perhaps into a proper reunion in terms of a you know a new contract for him at Spurs I don't think so I don't think so I mean I think time has gone on I thought you were a romantic mate. I am and I I, I remember when <laughs> I remember when it, it it became clear that Christian Eriksen was going to make a comeback I desperately wanted it to happen at Spurs just because I felt as if it was no opportunity and if someone was going to give him the opportunity I would have liked it to have been my club to give it to him 
I don't know. I, I just think time has moved on a little bit. He's a player. He's a wonderful player that I have a lot of affection for, but he's a player from a different Tottenham era and also, crucially, from a different Tottenham system. If Antonio Conte stays at Spurs beyond the end of the summer, which seems like he probably will do, I don't see really where Ericsson fits in in like a two-man midfield. I don't think he's quite the right player. Doesn't have the two players behind him that he would have done under uh, Maurizio Pochettino. So it's um, still a, bit, a little bit changed. And also, like, uh, I... It, 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 I keep branding myself as a romantic and I, you know, I'm sure I could hear my my wife laugh in the distance. Um, <laughs> um, but I I like the fact that you have a kind of an unsullied era. Like he, he was wonderful for Tottenham and I want, him to, I want him to go and do excellent things somewhere else and, you know, you know, show what a good player he is. And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how he can come back to Tottenham and for it to be, as good i think it's um it's a false move but i, I think you can um i can see I, I think we can all see exactly what's about to happen on saturday i mean it's just it's tottenham it's ericsson it's an ex-player it's also a team who are really good with set pieces and throw-ins and uh i really i really fancy brentford for that one actually i think uh, i think they'll win that game and i think ericsson will score like you know hat trick at least <laughs> 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 yeah, what, what do you think the future holds for him, Glenn? You know, again, if we look at it dispassionately and even you know a, a little cynically, you know, he might well end up following the money to Newcastle, mightn't he? Well, he might. Quite a lot of players will this summer. I mean, I see John Joe Shelby talking about threatening PSG and City, which I thought was an interesting choice of clubs given Newcastle's own circumstances. And to be honest, yeah, I wouldn't entirely rule that out. Though in two or three years, given the amount of resources they could invest, uh, though, that Shelby will be in the team if they are, not just because his contract is up next summer. Actually, Newcastle. Well, football is a pragmatic game isn't it, rather than a romantic game most of the time. And that's certainly certainly feasible. There will be good clubs, big clubs, looking at how he's done and, and possibly wait to see how he does, you know, in the, well, no, it's the World Cup scores in October, isn't it? Um, so there will be clubs looking at him in the summer and certainly thinking about it and, you know, obviously give him a problem medical and so on. But it'd be, it'd be lovely thing if he stayed at Brentford next year, but I can't see it, to be honest. Mm. Yeah. I suppose credit where it's due at Newcastle. They've earned only New, only Liverpool have earned more points than them in 2022. I think they've won nine Premier League games since the turn of the year, which, given that they won, I think it was eight in the entirety of 2021, tells you the impact of their investment stroke spending um, in the in the January window. What about the the dangers of triumphalism up there? You know, premature triumphalism um do you think that is um a factor seb hard to say mike because uh, i think from a fan's perspective you're looking at a football club that whether where there's been no ambition there's been no aspiration for a really long time and so it's entirely natural for supporters to get carried away and fair enough i think we would in that same situation i think the only note of caution i sound is that there is always a little bit of a tricky road in the beginning whenever there's big investment you tend to get initial wave of players who some are great some are not some have a long-term value some don't i think you can also you can already kind of pick a few characters out of that list now you know i think Bruno gomerish is a super player but it's tricky because with money come things like ego comes you know sort of there'll be a point at, uh, in the future at which well uh, you know eddie howe's done well but you know can he can he manage this superstar that we've just bought off the off the peg from somewhere so new money new danger in, in ways and no I, I don't i don't i have a problem with with football fans looking towards the future i don't have a problem with triumphalism really because i if you don't have that would you have i mean we, we began this podcast by talking about like how everything in england is won by the same group of teams now that is a, you know, a corrosive force it erodes everybody's fondness for the game so dare to dream fair enough fair enough fair enough i mean it's um yeah it's understandable Okay. Final point then, uh, gents. Suggestions that managers should be interviewed at half time in the Premier League from next season. Apparently, club media departments are quite happy with that. You know, from our experience, what do you think? A valuable insight or just a waste of time? I think it has some possibilities. I mean, watching the um, interviews they did on pitching drinks breaks during the Ashes series in Australia, some of those were actually much better than anticipated. I think managers will vary enormously. Some of them will say things they probably shouldn't say and will regret doing it. And I can see a backlash 
cropping up pretty quickly when one or two managers get into trouble or, or say things that then get turned around the second half. It's going to be an absolute field day for rolling news and social media. Yeah, obviously us. It has possibilities, uh, given the incredibly high-profile managers already, whether, you know, making it even higher is, is a mixed blessing. But, I mean, they're 15 minutes half-time. Most of them would tell you they don't even use, they don't use most of that. They only need two or three minutes to talk. I mean, they, they have actually got time to do this, quite when they're going to do it. And whoever's doing the interviewing is going to need nerves of steel interviewing the manager when they're 3-0 down at half-time sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and a very, very good way with words. It, I think it could be quite interesting. I mean, you know, TV pays the bills. You have to give them what they want. What do you think, Seb? Yeah, it depends who's asking the questions because if it's just sort of softballs and, you know, appearances and Instagram posts and stuff like that, then what's the point? If it's someone who knows how to kind of extract a proper response and extract proper information, then that could be very, very interesting. But yeah, it's going to need, uh, need some good appointments, I think, wherever that crops up. Mm. Well, I'm, you know, all for behind the scenes insight and, you know, I take what, you know, Glenn said there when he talks about 15 minutes being a long time, but a half time is a manager's golden time. Now, most of them that I know spend a couple of minutes with their players, probably in an ante room near the dressing room, and then they go in and deliver, you know, usually three key concise messages to their players because that's probably all their attention span can cope with. You know, to be honest, they're going to have too much on their mind to bother with rushed interviews of little apparent value to them at least. My fear is that this innovation is going to consist of two routine questions and two vanilla answers. You know, I know it works after a fashion in North American sport, but in our culture, I'm not so sure. And probably, you know, to be honest, again, the manager will delegate the chore to his assistant. What do you think of the idea? Please let me know. In the meantime, uh, thanks to Seb and Glenn for their views. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.